Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello again. I'm John Gidley, and welcome to another trip into the football attic. Today we're going to talk about a blown opportunity for a game of the ages. On Monday night, December 3rd, 1990, the 10-1 San Francisco 49ers hosted the 10-1 New York Giants. They had each suffered unlikely losses the week before, thereby robbing us of what could have been an 11-0 versus 11-0 matchup. First, a little backstory. By 1990, the San Francisco 49ers were easily the gold standard of the National Football League, they had won each of the previous two Super Bowls, a 20-16 nail-biter over the Cincinnati Bengals, and more recently, a 55-10 embarrassment of the Denver Broncos. Through the first 10 games of the 1990 season, the Niners proved that nothing had changed by starting the year 10-0. A few of those victories were close, but coming into their November 25th home game against the Los Angeles Rams, they had won their last two by a combined score of 55-13 over Dallas and Tampa Bay. San Francisco boasted the best passer-receiver duo in the NFL, that, of course, was Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. Additionally, the Niners had one of the best defenses in the league, led this season by Dave Weimer, who intercepted seven passes, and Charles Haley, who recorded 16 sacks. If the 49ers were the model franchise, the New York Giants were not far behind, though they had their struggles to close out the 80s. After winning the Super Bowl in 1986, the Giants missed the playoffs in both 1987 and 88. In 1989, New York went 12-4, and won the NFC East, and earned a first-round bye, but were upset in the divisional round at home by the Rams. Like the 49ers, the Giants also started 1990 with a 10-0 record. They were in Philadelphia on November 25th to face the Eagles. Coming into that game, the G-Men had won their last three by a combined 75-14 margin over the Colts, Rams, and Lions. The Giants' offense was solid, led by reliable quarterback Phil Simms and running back O.J. Anderson, but their strong suit was easily their defense. Their captain on that side of the ball was the man who many consider to be the greatest defender in NFL history, Lawrence Taylor. When the 1990 schedule came out in the spring, everyone's eyes immediately went to the Monday Night Football matchup schedule for December 3rd, the Giants at the 49ers. A matchup of the top two teams in the NFC from the year before was bound to be big. The only way it could be bigger is if both were undefeated. A week before this matchup, each of them had a perfect 10-0 mark, each needing one more win to set this up as perhaps the biggest game in the history of Monday Night Football. But the Philadelphia Eagles and the Los Angeles Rams, the Giants and 49ers' respective opponents on November 25th, had other ideas. New York entered Philadelphia that day as three-point favorites against an Eagles team that was riding a four-game winning streak after starting the year 2-4. and four. The Giants struck first when Phil Simms threw a 15-yard touchdown pass to Mark Bavaro. The Eagles then answered with two touchdowns of their own, a 49-yard pass from Randall Cunningham to Fred Barnett and a one-yard sneak by Cunningham. Shortly before halftime, Sims threw another touchdown pass to Bavaro, this one from four yards out, but kicker Matt Barr missed the extra point. Instead of a halftime tie, Philadelphia led 14-13. to 
The second Sims to Bavaro hookup would be the last time the Giants scored that day. Roger Ruzek kicked a 39-yard field goal in the third quarter to give the Eagles some breathing room, and Philadelphia added two fourth-quarter touchdowns, a six-yard pass from Cunningham to Calvin Williams, and a 23-yard pick-six by Byron Evans. Final score, Eagles 31, Giants 13. New York was embarrassed by their arch-rivals ahead of a crucial road game against the Super Bowl champions. A memorable play for Eagles fans from this game was on a run by Randall Cunningham. As he raced down the far sideline, Giants linebacker Pepper Johnson approached, and it looked as though Cunningham would be taken out. Instead, running back Keith Byers came to the rescue and blocked Johnson with so much force that the 250-pound linebacker went airborne, much to the delight of the crowd at Veterans Stadium. So the first domino had fallen. The Giants' 49ers game would not be 11-0 versus 11-0. New York was now 10-1, but maybe San Francisco could still win and give the Giants an incentive to knock off the unbeatens. Later that afternoon, the Niners hosted their own arch-rivals, the Los Angeles Rams. San Francisco was an 11.5-point favorite against the Los Angeles team that had fallen on hard times. After making the playoffs seven times in the 1980s, the Rams suddenly found themselves at 3-7. and seven. L.A. was not to be underestimated, however. They had won each of their previous two regular season games at Candlestick Park, although they were embarrassed by the 49ers in the 1989 NFC Championship game 30-3. The Giants' loss to the Eagles was surprising but not shocking. The 49ers beating the Rams had to be a layup, right? Well, Los Angeles running back Cleveland Gary would have something to say about that. The second year back from Miami burst onto the scene in 1990 by scoring 15 touchdowns, three of them coming on this day. He caught a 22-yard scoring pass in the first quarter from fullback Buford McGee on a trick play and added a 10-yard run early in the second. After Joe Montana threw a five-yard touchdown pass to John Taylor, McGee scored on a six-yard run to make the halftime score 21-7 in favor of the Rams. The 49ers tried to climb back into the game in the third quarter, with Montana throwing a 23-yard touchdown pass to Harry Sidney and Mike Kofer kicking a 42-yard field goal to cut L.A.'s lead to four points. Instead, in the fourth quarter, Gary scored on a one-yard plunge for his third touchdown of the game. And at the end of the day, Los Angeles had stunned San Francisco with a 28-17 victory. A Rams defense that had struggled all season intercepted Joe Montana three times. All of a sudden, what could have been the game of the century turned out to be just another matchup of two 10-1 teams. That's not to say it wasn't a big game. It still was. It earned a 27 rating for ABC, their highest rated Monday night game since 1985, when the Miami Dolphins upset the undefeated Chicago Bears. After a scoreless first quarter, Matt Barr kicked a 20-yard field goal for New York, and Joe Montana threw a 23-yard touchdown pass to John Taylor. The halftime score was 7-3 in favor of the 49ers. What you have just heard was a complete scoring recap of this game. That's right, the final score was 7-3 San Francisco. Even though these were two very good offenses, the defenses were number one and number two in the NFL. So much for a game of the century. This would not be the last time that the Giants and 49ers met in 1990. They would play again on January 20th, 1991, in San Francisco, with a trip to the Super Bowl on the line. In the interim, the Niners suffered another upset loss, a Week 16 home defeat to New Orleans. That was their only blemish in their final five games as they finished the year 14-2 for the second consecutive season. As for the Giants, in a Week 15 home loss to Buffalo, a worst-case scenario occurred, as Phil Simms broke his foot. Jeff Hostetler, who had only started two games in his NFL career, was now New York's starting quarterback. The Giants won each of their final two regular season games to finish 13-3, good enough for a first-round bye, but not enough for home field advantage. Both teams scored easy home victories in the divisional round. The 49ers beat Washington 28-10, and the Giants crushed Chicago 31-3. 
In their NFC Championship game matchup, New York defensive lineman Leonard Marshall decided that it was unfair for the Giants to be the only team playing with a backup quarterback. In the fourth quarter, with the Giants trailing 13-12, Marshall pummeled Joe Montana with a brutal sack from behind. Montana never saw him coming. Now San Francisco needed to rely on a backup quarterback as well, Steve Young. With the Niners rattled by Montana's injury, Hostetler was able to piece together a final drive to put the Giants in field goal range. As time expired, Matt Barr's 42-yard field goal snuck through the left upright, and New York advanced to the Super Bowl with a 15-13 victory. You probably know how that Super Bowl turned out. Giants 20, Bills 19, wide right. Thanks for joining me for this trip into the football attic, and I hope to see you again next week. In the meantime, check out all the other great podcasts here on the Sports History Network, and follow me on Twitter at JFG Sports. Until next time, this is John Gidley. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that, can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.